So as I said, we're going to focus in on John 12, 34 to 36. Jesus had alluded to his own death in John 12, 32, saying, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Without the explanatory note in verse 33, we might be inclined to think that that refers to his ascension. But the explanatory note in verse 33 helps us realize beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is speaking about his death. After all, verse 33 says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So obviously what Jesus was referring to was being lifted up from the ground on a Roman cross. That's what he means in verse 32. Doubtless, he intends it uh, to be something of a double entendre or a double meaning, that the means of his exaltation is also going to be the cross. But in a, in a, in a primary sense, what he's referring to is his death. And in response to this allusion to his death, the crowd responds with a line of questioning in verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? In other words, they understand it as a reference to death. And so they say, well, we heard in the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that he's going to die? And then they say, and who is this Son of Man? Which, obviously, if they've connected Jesus' allusion to his own death uh, with the Christ remaining forever... Uh, they're obviously equating the Christ and the Son of Man with Jesus. And so it seems that this question, who is this Son of Man, is an attempt to tease out an explicit uh, claim to be that Son of Man, to be that Christ from Jesus, as they have previously done in John's Gospel. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It seems that they're trying to bait him here. Who is this Son of Man, anyway, when obviously... By their question, they understand that Jesus intends himself as the referent. Jesus doesn't respond directly to these questions. He's already answered these questions sufficiently in his ministry thus far. And so he doesn't bother to answer them here again. In response to the last question, Jesus has already made it clear that he himself is the Son of Man who in Daniel's visions was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We talked about this last week. Jesus has clearly indicated that he is the expected Messiah who will cast out the ruler of this world and reign in his place bringing life in the place of death and light in the place of darkness. As for the question about the Christ remaining forever and the perceived incompatibility between that, the Christ and the Messiah remaining forever, and Jesus' statement about the death of the Messiah, we have only to consider what Christ has taught us already about the nature of his Messiahship. Jesus is not a Messiah who will seek to preserve his life. Rather, he is the sort of Messiah who will lay down his life for his sheep.
John 10 and 15. But he will not leave his life laid down, as it were, but he will take it up again. John 10, 18. He is the very resurrection and the life. Thus, he will live again. Death will not be able to hold the one who is the resurrection and the life. He will live again, and so will everyone who believes in him. This resolves the dilemma about how the Christ will both die and remain forever. And so, since Jesus has already answered these questions sufficiently, sufficiently enough at least for anyone who has cared to listen and observe and think, Jesus doesn't bother to answer them again when they are posed to him here in John chapter 12. They are requesting that Jesus reiterate the information that he's already given them. But Jesus responds with an admonition to the effect that they should urgently use the information that they've already been given. After all, the Jews had much light. Those to whom Jesus originally spoke these words in John 12, 35, and 36 had Jesus himself right in front of them. They were literally in the presence of the light of the world. Jesus is called that as he is the fullest revelation of God. And therefore, he is the fullness and the embodiment of truth. To know Jesus is to be truly enlightened. And Jesus is also the bringer of hope. The light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. As the consummate bringer of both truth and hope, Jesus is called the light of the world. And here he is, this consummate bringer of both truth and hope, standing right in front of the Jews. They had much light. And it was sufficient light for them to believe. Jesus teaches in John 5, 30 to 47, that there were no less than four witnesses to his identity as the consummate bringer of truth and hope. First, he himself, but not he only. Second, John the Baptist also. Third, the works he did, which showed convincingly that the Father had sent him. And fourth, the scriptures, which means that Moses himself, on whom the Jews had set their hope, pointed forward to Jesus as the true hope bringer. In view of these four credible witnesses, it was not irrational to believe as if not enough information had yet been given. Jesus had been already thus far in his ministry very explicit about who he was. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 10, 24, the Jews asked Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus' answer is not cryptic. 
I told you, and you do not believe. Jesus has already been clear and thorough in telling people that He is from heaven, from the Father, on a mission to reveal God more fully than ever before and to bring God's purpose of salvation for a lost world to pass through His own death and resurrection. The Jews already had much light. They did not need to ask Him to give them more. They did not need to ask Him to reiterate what He had already said. They already had much light. And we also have much light. Certainly we who are in this room and those who later today will watch on live stream, we have much light. After all, I, I just recapped basically the Gospel of John in brief for you a moment ago. You have literally just heard that Jesus is the light of the world, the bringer of truth and hope. You could say henceforth that you don't believe it, that you've rejected it, that you've walked away from it, but you could never say henceforth that you never heard. You could never say henceforth that you didn't know. We in the church, certainly, but also those not in the church, but within earshot of her witness to Christ, have light. We have much light. Our unbelieving friends, co-workers, family members, including our children yet to believe. Everyone to whom we have borne witness to Christ Jesus, they have much light. They are not in the darkness of unreached paganism without Bibles in the country, without Christians in the country, without preachers and evangelists in the country. To the contrary, they have heard that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. They have heard that Jesus is the light of the world. They have much light, as did these Jews to whom Jesus originally spoke these words in John 12, 35 and 36. But these Jews standing right in front of Jesus were about to lose light. And by this I mean that Jesus himself personally was about to be taken from them. Remember that we are chronologically less than a week away from Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus will soon die, and though he will rise, he will never resume such a public, personal ministry as he had been carrying out among the Jews before his death. After his resurrection, he will personally focus on training and dispatching his disciples to bear witness about him, to minister on his behalf. So most of the Jews will not see Jesus again personally. 
after the next few days. And even the apostles will shift their focus largely away from the Jews toward the Gentiles in the days to come. We read in John 1.11 that Jesus came unto his own, but his own received him not. And we read later in the New Testament about God's large-scale rejection of the Jews and his focus on the Gentiles then in the ensuing years, decades, centuries. Romans 11 explores this idea using the analogy of a tree. It says that for the time being, God has broken off Jewish branches in order to graft on Gentile branches. Acts 13, 46 gives us a vivid, real-world picture of what has happened by God's appointment and God's design in the unfolding of history. There in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas experience a rejection of their message by the Jews in Antioch, and they respond by saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And again, when Paul's message is rejected by the Jews in Corinth in Acts 18.6, Paul says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So though the Jews were never left without any witness at all, after all, Peter was an apostle in uh, Jerusalem for a good while. There was a Christian witness still among the Jews. It is clear, nevertheless, that they lost some measure of light. Not merely because of Jesus' personal departure, that Jesus was no longer physically among them, but also because of a shift in the apostolic focus and emphasis away from primarily the Jews towards primarily the Gentiles. The Jews lost some light. These Jews who were standing right in front of Jesus They had much light. And then they lost some light. And as the Jews lost some light, it is a normal and standard experience of many in our day and age to likewise lose some light. For example, many who were brought up in Christian homes became adults and find themselves no longer under the regular instruction of the Word of God. Many, including them, now adults who had grown up in Christian homes, many, including them, who were once regular attenders of a church for whatever reason, though not believers themselves, many who once were in church regularly, fade and drift away from church attendance. Many who were once regularly under the influence of the gospel come in time 
to be infrequently exposed to gospel truth. Instead of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, their primary musical influence becomes just merely whatever's on the radio. Instead of the Bible, the newspaper, or their Facebook feed becomes their primary guide to reality. Instead of the fellowship of the saints, even if they themselves were not believers, they used to be among the saints. And now it is their business associates or their classmates or the guys on the block or whatever who are now their primary community. The hearing of John 3.16 or Amazing Grace evokes a nostalgic feeling of a bygone phase of their lives instead of evoking present, lively feelings of trust in the gospel and love toward God. Some lose light in those sorts of ways. So many that we could just say it's like a normal, standard experience that people who have once been immersed in spiritual things, around spiritual people, exposed to spiritual truths, in circumstances where there's lots and lots of light, now they're not really anymore. It's pretty normal. Some lose light in those sorts of ways. And some lose light like this. They take tomorrow for granted when the reality is that the Grim Reaper stalks them today. And death, for the unbeliever, extinguishes all light. So in one way or another, having much light and then losing some of it or all of it is actually a very relatable experience. A very common experience, a standard experience, we could even say, of many, many, many people. It was not just the Jews in John 12 who had light that they were going to lose. Perhaps you or your loved ones have light presently, but it's as much light as you're ever going to have or as much light as they're ever going to have. And it's not going to actually get brighter. There's not going to be more light in the days ahead. There's actually going to be less because of drifting or fading or reprioritizing or supposedly maturing or growing past that or because of death. For some people, they literally have as much light today as they're ever going to have and it's going to be less and less light as time goes on. In view of this, this reality which is so common, so standard, so normal, in view of this, it is urgent to make use of the spiritual light that you have. 
Jesus says it like this in our passage before us. The light is among you for a little while longer by implication, and then you're going to lose it. Therefore, by implication, while you have the light, walk. Walk while you have the light. In other words, don't just stand there. Don't waste the opportunity. Do what needs to be done. Make hay while the sun shines, as that old proverb says. But what does that look like? What does it look like to walk while you have the light? Verse 36, Jesus finishes his thought saying, believe in the light. That's what it means to walk while you have the light. The spiritual light of which Jesus speaks is not given for passive enjoyment, like suntanning. Merely soaking in the light while doing nothing. The spiritual light of which Jesus speaks is light which shines in the darkness in order that we may work, that we may do something. It's analogous then to a construction light, like the yellow one we have in the church's storage container. You've seen it before. We use it sometimes to help with the lighting for the live stream. We've used it in the past for diverting rain flies away from the preacher during evening services. We bought it in the first place to light up the property out there when we had an outreach barbecue and fish fry uh, to bring some more outdoor lighting. But do you know what it was manufactured for? Not, not diverting rain flies away from a preacher. Not for helping with live stream lighting. You can get better lights for that. It wasn't even made in the first place for lighting up outdoor barbecues. In the first place, it was made to be a durable, bright, portable, waterproof light that could be thrown in the back of a pickup truck and driven to a construction site so that guys could keep working even after the sun sets. That's what it's for. It's light in order that men may work. That's what an item like that is for. That's why it looks different than a lamp in your house. That's why it has more, uh, uh, gives off more brightness, what is the word, lumens, than many of the lights in our households. Because it's, it's, it's not just so that you can find your way to the kitchen, it's so that you could actually do, say, fine carpentry after the sun sets on a site where there is not yet indoor uh, electricity wired into the house that you're working on or the building you're working on. As that light is so that men may work, so this spiritual light that Jesus is referring to in John 12 is given so that men may work by it, so to speak. The people asked Jesus in John chapter 6 and verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Isn't that what he says here in John 12 also? Believe in the light. 
the light, which is the message about Jesus, the hope that we may find in Him, based upon the truth about Him. It is to be believed in. The light isn't just given. Jesus didn't just come to bring us light to be passively enjoyed, like the sun shining on a sunbather on vacation, just passively soaking it in, doing nothing. Jesus didn't come in order that we may passively enjoy the light He brings. Jesus came in order that we might do something in response to the light, enabled by the light, helped, assisted by the light to do something. And the something is belief. Jesus is to be believed in. The message about Him is to be believed in. And it is urgent to believe in Jesus. It is urgent to believe in the message about Jesus. Well, you have some light. For it is possible that you may not ever get more light. And it is certain for the unbeliever that they will one day lose whatever light they do have if they remain in their unbelief and outside of Christ. The bell tolls for all, as they say. One day it shall toll for thee. Walk then while you have the light. Don't just stand there. Don't waste the opportunity. Do what you've got to do. Make hay while the sun shines. Christians, we need to press the urgency of this action upon our loved ones. Walk while you have the light. Meaning, believe in Jesus in plain terms, without the figurative language. Believe in Jesus. That's what it means to walk while you have the light. It's not enough simply to provide them with the right information about Jesus, the way that we might coolly and neutrally share an interesting point of trivia, a historical detail or some such thing. We ought to press with earnestness upon our loved ones that we are not promised tomorrow. And that unbelief is not like a rash on the skin, which is likely to probably just resolve with time if you leave it alone. Unbelief is not like that. We are like vapor and mist which is burned up by the heat of the day, disappears. I find I don't see it nearly as much here in Barbados as I used to in Canada, but some mornings in Canada, you wake up, there's like a thick fog, sometimes enveloping everything, but sometimes like maybe only the first two or three feet off the ground. You look outside and it's like the ground is like covered by a cloud. It's early, you know, at sunrise. But by the time it gets to nine, 10 o'clock, Everything's clean. We're just like that vaporous mist. In the words of Psalm 90, we are like grass that springs up today and tomorrow is cut down. And yet, when we are cut down, we do not pass into non existence. 
but into an eternity either of pleasures at the right hand of God, as Psalm 16 says, or into an eternity of what Matthew 25 and verse 30 calls the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We must press then with urgency, as Jesus does here, the importance of using what light has been given to do the appropriate work by that light, which is to believe in Christ Jesus. Now, as a caveat, we should note that it is reasonable for people to ask some questions and do some investigation prior to believing. After all, if somebody came into this church building after the service while we were cleaning up and said, Pastor John, I've got news for you. Jesus is actually not a savior and you should believe in someone else instead. It wouldn't be rational for me to be like, oh really, okay. That would not be the rational response. It would be no more rational simply to expect people to just believe in Jesus the second we tell them he's the Savior. If they've never heard about Jesus, they don't know anything about Jesus, there would be no real rational, compelling reason why they should believe. So it makes sense for people to ask some questions and do some investigation before believing. But here's a very crucial point that we need to be clear about and that unbelievers need to be very clear about in their own minds. There is a difference between having sufficient understanding and having comprehensive understanding. We ought not to allow those to whom we bear witness to believe that it is rational for them to refrain from believing until they have comprehensive understanding. In other words, we don't applaud endless questions, endless doubt, endless skepticism. The unbeliever should realize that it is not rational to wait until you have a comprehensive understanding before you believe if you've arrived at a sufficient understanding. Who among us would claim to have a comprehensive understanding of a shark's digestive system? Perhaps you are an expert, but not I. Nevertheless, if I was swimming and I saw one of those notorious fins sticking out of the water, I have sufficient understanding to get out of the water. I don't need to know everything about a shark's digestive system in order to make the reasonable choice not to be digested by one. You may sufficiently know that you must be saved, that you are a sinner, and that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. 
You may sufficiently know that before you know comprehensively everything about Christ and about Christianity. To wait until you have some understanding of who Jesus is and to ask basic, fundamental questions to ascertain not only what is being proposed but the truth value of what is being proposed before you believe is reasonable. But to remain in unbelief because of a professed lack of light when the reality is you have sufficient light is not reasonable nor is it safe. If you see a fin, you got to get out of the water. And when you see your sin, you got to seek a savior. It is urgent and imperative. We need to know it ourselves. And we need to press upon the people to whom we bear witness about Jesus. That they need to make use of the spiritual light that they have been given. When we have shared the gospel with them, when we've answered some basic questions about reliability and truthfulness, what remains is to believe, even if there are outstanding questions. What is necessary is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you may be saved. Because all of us who have some light will either become someone that truth and hope begets. In other words, sons of light, as Jesus says here. We are either going to be people that the truth about Jesus and the hope about Jesus gives birth to, who have been shaped by that truth and that hope, or we are going to become someone utterly disoriented and lost, who, as Jesus says here, does not know where they are going, and eventually they stumble into the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everyone who has been given sufficient light either ends up as a son of light or ends up in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is urgent when people have sufficient light that they stop asking for more and more and more and more and more light before they believe as a prerequisite to believe. It is imperative that they stop insisting that we reiterate over and over again the same things as a pretext for their unbelief. It is imperative that when they have sufficient belief that they make use of it. That they walk while there is light. Figuratively speaking. Without any figurative language, without any analogy, without any dressy language, that they believe in Jesus. That they trust in Him.
need to press this on them, as Jesus did here. He didn't bother to answer the same old questions over and over again. He'd already told them sufficiently. He didn't buy their pretext for unbelief that they needed to hear it again or they needed more light. He cut straight to the point. Look, you have light. Walk while it is light. Jesus points them to the urgency of belief, the urgency of faith.